this is Tiffany Aurora. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. So I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Laura Lee Kodjo is joining me today. Laura Lee publishes under the pen name LT Kodjo, Kodjo spelled K-O-D-Z-O. She's an award-winning author and public speaker. She primarily writes young adult psychological thrillers, and a few of the more recent titles in her catalog include Dead Things, The Center, and The Bunker. Laura Lee's first novel, was titled Locker 572, and it's a powerful story about a teenage girl who was bullied at school. It also went on to win Laura Lee critical acclaim and attention as a piece of work that really starts a powerful conversation about bullying and suicide. Laura Lee went on to win the President's Volunteer Service Award specifically for her work around bullying prevention and suicide prevention. Um, all of which is really cool. So, Laura Lee, I'm so happy to have you here on the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tiffany. Good to be here. So I actually wanted to start with a question about your work around bullying prevention and suicide prevention, because you are both an author and a public speaker, and your work in this area has been so integral to your work across both mediums. I know this is a really important piece of of your work and who you are. So could you just walk us through that? Tell us a little bit about what that story is and why this is an area that is so near and dear to your heart. Yeah, thanks for asking. The truth is, is that I didn't um, think I would ever publicly talk about suicide because as a person who has lived with suicidal ideation, at the time I published Locker 572, I was actually in corporate America. I was, you know, working for big corporations. And the last thing, you know, anyone wants to hear is this person might be suicidal. And it's, um, you know, mental health is something I think our country is getting a much better handle around. But this was back in 2010, 2011. And um, I never thought I would speak about it. I, it was just like my hidden secret that I kept. And so when I wrote the story, I wrote it for the goal of entertaining, for the goal of making a good novel. But the mental health um, organization in the community when I was living in Shimon County, New York, they used to have the highest rate of suicide and they were actively working to fight that. And it just so happens that's where I was living when this book got published. So I was um, brought in to work with organizations to start having conversations about both suicide and bullying and um, the public speaking I did, the book being used in schools, doing assemblies. So really, I think I happened upon it because it was where it was a part of who I am. I am a person who has su suffered from suicidal ideation. I'm a person who has survived to a point where I no longer have suicidal ideations. But from the time I was 13 till I was 46, I actually still had regular bouts of, you know, not feeling worthy, not feeling value. Um, and having to process through that. So um, I kind of came upon it as my own personal experience. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So if someone wanted to reach out to you, if they were interested in your book, Locker 572, or they were interested in having you come speak, what's, what's a good way for them to connect with you? 
know, this might seem very uncommon these days, but I don't mind giving them my direct cell phone number. The reason I don't mind is A, I don't answer my phone to anyone who is not on my contact list because everyone knows scammers just will blow up your phone like crazy if you ever answer one phone call. Um, so if anyone <laughs> wants to call that line, I will immediately call them back. So my phone number is 801-414-2550. So that's for teachers who might be looking um, to have someone come and speak in their classroom if they're using the book. The book, Locker 572, is approved curriculum um, across the United States. Multiple states have adopted it. Um, and so, yeah, that's the best way to get a hold of me is, I think, via phone. If not, um, I answer email slower. <laughs> So <laughs> sure. kajobooks uh, at gmail is my uh, email. Okay, great. Thank you. So K-O-D-Z-O <laughs> books at gmail.com. So That's right. Okay. That's right. All right. So you had a corporate career before you became a writer and a speaker full time. And I'm curious about um, what caused you to choose writing and speaking i mean essentially you chose to become a professional storyteller and you had a very successful corporate career so i'm sure you could have chosen any great number of things what drew you to storytelling as a profession yeah that's such a great question you know it's an interesting overlap so i've always been a storyteller i just don't think i ever you know gave myself permission to call myself that you know imposter syndrome as a fellow writer we sometimes don't mm -hmm. feel very qualified. So I had an amazing corporate career. I loved what I did. It made money and raised my children. But basically, all of my writing overlapped my corporate career. So the trigger that got me into the entrepreneurial author life was the pandemic. At the end of the pandemic, um, I was no longer interested in the job. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. I had recently gone through a divorce. I had some mental or some met physical health issues prior to the divorce. And so by 2020, I just said, why am I just stockpiling 401k? Um, why am I staying in a corporate job that is no longer satisfying to me when I really want to just follow this career I love? And everybody, I think, during the pandemic started to look. That was one of the things. Mm -hmm. 2020 for me became a very 2020 vision year to start looking. Mm -hmm. So that was when I... I'm now in the midst of the angst that is entrepreneurial authorship and public speaking and stuff because it's a bit of a roller coaster. It doesn't have that same security. So I'm just trusting that yeah. my dreams can, can come true. <laughs> I have a number of questions for you along that line, but I want to start in the area of writing because you and I have known each other for a little while now. We haven't known yeah. each other for super long. But one of the things that I have noticed about you and that I've really admired about you is that I feel like you absolutely love the craft of writing. And it seems like you also love to encourage other writers to fall in love with the craft of writing. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what is it about the art of writing a story down and learning how to do so in like a technically beautiful way that inspires you? Wow, Tiffany, thank you so much. I've never had anyone notice that about me. Um, it is something I've studied, and I do think that writers should study craft. I believe it wholeheartedly, and so I do study a lot of craft, so for you to observe that in me is kind of awesome. I just think that um, words can distract from a story as much as words can benefit a story, mm. and so yeah. I know as a public speaker, if, I'm, if I have a certain set agenda that I'm going to speak on, I do really well, but I find sometimes 
um, if we're sitting at a table and we're all talking, sometimes I'm quite annoying to the point of opinionated, to the point of overwhelming. And that's because when I speak, I don't have an editor. Like if I'm planned to go to a speaking event, I'm well prepared, right? I've rehearsed it and I know what I'm going to say and I know what I'm not going to say. But in general speaking, um, I find that there are great friends who tolerate my um, novel-esque style of going on and on and over explaining <laughs> and, and stuff that can really irritate some people. Um, so I find words can be so powerful, but they can also be detrimental. They can misrepresent what you really think. And so the craft of writing is that, you know, I think it was um, Mark Twain, maybe, who was credited for saying there are no such thing as good writers, only good rewriters. And I think that's so true. I think the polishing of our craft really elevates the ability for the reader not to get, for us not to get in the way of the reader's fictional dream. And so, yeah, I yeah. still continue to study it and still want to do <laughs> better and better and better as I write my stories. Is there, a, is there an overlap for you in learning the craft of public speaking and the craft of writing? And the, what prompts that question is, I'm wondering if, um, if there are aspects of public speaking that you feel like would help other writers so let's say maybe people are just they're just getting started they're gonna maybe write their first novel their first screenplay and they're looking at different ways to learn and become better as a storyteller and i'm wondering if you see any overlap there i think there's a there uh, there is overlap as far as you know brand or the fact that if nowadays honestly like Tiffany, you're a writer, but you're starting this pub mm -hmm. podcast and you're wanting people to get out there and know you. So I think that um, writers today need to have more of a presence out there in the world besides just their books, because there are so many books available. There's, you know, mm -hmm. how do you get found? And so when I was in corporate America, I was a corporate trainer and I was a corporate facilitator and people wanted me to teach them how to facilitate better. And ultimately I told them, take some I don't know, theater classes, go to an open mic night, you know, because once you yep. realize that you're facing an audience, you become not only aware of the audience, you become aware of what the audience needs, what they want, what they don't want. And ultimately, as a writer, it's the same. We shouldn't be writing for ourselves. I, and this is, again, where I study craft. We should be writing to readers. Anything I write for myself and totally for myself, I would call that a journal right? Those are my thoughts. But if I'm writing for mm -hmm. publication, then I should have a reader in mind and look to try to find a way to satisfy what that reader is looking for. And so I think that's what, inter, you know, people who perform, the performing arts, they do. They stand in front and they're saying, what can I do to satisfy this audience? And so I think it's the same. So I absolutely think there's an overlap. Yeah. I don't know that I've cognitive, you know, I've thought of it like cognitively and said, oh, look sure. at this overlap. But uh, your observation is keen that, you know, I'm starting my own YouTube channel to encourage writers to mm -hmm. help break the block, to use some of the corporate America techniques that I know in their entrepreneurial lives. So I just think there's just this need for presence um, that also can benefit writers in their career of being booksellers besides just writing. So I yeah. think there is an overlap, probably even deeper yeah. than that. Almost interesting um, in you, your so you, thoughts, but I guess I don't know if that's if this podcast is what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I share my thoughts from time to time. Sure, sure. Because I'm curious what um, you think as far as, you know, like you going into this, 
you know, if you feel like this podcast and what you're trying to do to satisfy your readers, if that's going to benefit your writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say, I would say that the the primary motivator for me doing this podcast is because I love having conversations with creative people. And I am in this space in life right now where I try to sort of weigh any new enterprise that I enter into from a standpoint of no matter what happens in terms of, you know, the numbers or what quote unquote success looks like in my head, yeah. will the process itself be worth it? Will I yeah. learn things out of it? Will I grow? Will I become better in a way that I know I'll be proud of? And so that's that's what pulled me to the podcast itself. Now, I do think there are some of these other benefits that you've mentioned. I'm certainly, yes, certainly increased presence is, is a byproduct of it. But um, for me, it's just kind of the joy in having interesting conversations with people that I find interesting. So. which will probably increase your writing your skills as exactly a exactly so it well, it, it it, yeah well it speaks a little bit to what what i call like the uh kind of like your well of creative energy like we all have one and yeah. what sort of refuels our well is different from one person to the next and so for that's me right. interesting conversations is a big part of that like that's what energizes me um but i'm curious just to, to throw this back to you, like what what sort of fills up your creative well and how, where do you go when you need inspiration? Oh, that's so such a good question, because I will say in the entrepreneurial life, I think that's the big aha. It was very easy when I was in corporate America because I knew I, I was, you know, only had a couple of hours a day that I could really dedicate to it. So I could be very focused and it was this outlet. Now that it's my full time job, I find that having the sprints. Now, um, you know, you and I, we happen to be in a meetup group and we do um, agile type sprints as writers. And so it's that creative. Well, it's be that really is where I can sit. And I know that I'm sitting with other people who are being creative at the moment. I'm enjoying that a great deal rather than just being in my cave and writing, you know, myself before I was fine mm -hmm. in my cave because I was only doing there two hours and then I would run out as an introvert. I would go out and do my dealings with other people in the corporate world. Now I find myself, I might get too hermited in my cave and uh, that does sure. not lend itself to good writing because I start to get really just like, I don't want to say bored, but I just, that imposter syndrome or just the feelings of, am I really contributing to society? Is this really, you know, a value? And so once I'm back with creatives, I, you know, feels that well. I think that's a great analogy that you gave, that well of creativity and having that, that um, artistic energy flowing. Mm -hmm. That's really where I find lately, that's where I find it. Other than yeah. that, my brain always has, I've never struggled for ideas. There was a book, a craft book I was reading once years ago, and they're like, okay, well, if you're struggling with ideas, here are the tips. And I'm like, I need to almost like shut down my idea bank because I have so <laughs> many ideas that are constantly generating that I never finish anything. I have to do the hard yeah. work of finishing things. <laughs> well, and I, th I think that's a very common struggle for creative people. I mean, I, I know there are exceptions or people who have, you know, one or two ideas and they're like, this is it, you know, like I'm going to pursue this one. I'm good with just this. But I think most of us have way too many. And that sort of curating process of in, in 
I'll call it like a pressure testing process of figuring out, you know, what's, what's the next idea that I'm going to invest my time and energy into is it's tough, but could you speak a little bit to that? Because you've written many books. You're, I mentioned that you primarily write YA psychological thrillers, but I, I believe you have children's books as well. Is that correct? I do. I have children's books out there. I also have some um, inspirational books. I'm recompiling the Bible. I think for me personally, I whether I'm ADD, whether I have some kind of, I don't know, um, lots of thought process going on, I need diversity. You know, variety mm. is the spice of life, if you will. And so I can't write, I, you know, now that I've been since 2020 in this kind of entrepreneurial, can I be a writer full time? I have discovered I cannot write eight hours a day. I can't mm -hmm. write five hours a day. My creative energy eventually gets to tap out. Mm -hmm. So I have other avenues that I invest in, and that could be art. I've recently been able to em embrace the fact that I'm also an artist. I struggled with considering myself, well, I really kind of call myself an illustrator, but I struggled to own that label because I look at people who create, you know, Van Gogh or whatever, right? Those are artists. Mm -hmm. That label mm -hmm. felt too big. I didn't feel qualified for it, but I definitely... Uh, people enjoy my illustrated children's books, and therefore I must be doing something right. Um, art is subjective, but yeah, I have to have multiple avenues to mm -hmm. work on the novels, work on the children's books. Almost everything I create, though, is at some level educational. I, I notice that I'm a natural teacher, mm. so all my children's okay. books have an educational component about it, and my novels unintentionally like bullying and suicide or the other aspects of it all have some kind of desire to grow and teach because it wasn't until I published Locker 572 that I learned the term bibliotherapy. And that's what the New York Suicide Prevention Director, when I first published my book, she labeled it. And I said, I don't know what that is. I wasn't intending to write bibliotherapy, but I did write it. Bibliotherapy is the fact that our brains don't know the difference between, you know, fiction and nonfiction. So when we go to a movie and if we're watching a horror movie, right, we are afraid, even though there is nothing surrounding us that's truly going to hurt us, our brains think that we're going to get hurt, which is why mm -hmm. we shake and shiver or erotica, pornography, why we get aroused. Our brains don't know the difference. So what therapists have done are take books like Locker 572 that deals with bullying and suicide with an end result that is hope, that is about overcoming it, right? They're successfully mm -hmm. being able to have somebody who's suffering from something like suicidal ideation read a book like that and feel as if they've gone through the experience the characters have gone through. Because again, the brain doesn't separate that. So it's a way of helping. So I think education is a, an interesting layer unintentionally in my novels, intentionally probably more with my children's books. Yeah. So it's this, I guess I, I, I'm just, I like to teach people things and you pointed it out. Yeah. I like to tell people about craft and what I learned and just don't ask me anything about how I I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to pour it out <laughs> in sizes bigger than you wanted. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was just asking you a, a little question and wow, you went there. <laughs> but that's a good thing for people to know because, 
you know, they may be looking for that sometimes. And so knowing that you're a resource for that is, is a good thing. Yeah. What, um, we've, we've mentioned, we've talked a little bit about audience and, you know, the importance of writing for your audience. How did you find your audience when you first started to write and has your audience changed over the course of the years as you've written many, many books? That's a fantastic question. I don't know if it was because the first kind of class for publication I took was a correspondence course back in the 80s uh, with the Institute of Children's Literature. Um, and basically it was teaching you how to write magazine articles and get published. Because back then you needed to have a resume of credentials and bylines for an agent to then accept you and then a publisher to accept you. Of course, we live in a time now where publication can be, you know, we can obtain that ourselves. But I took that course and I wrote my first novel took me 25 years to finish. And I just knew I had like this breakout hit. So I went to my first writers conference and I knew everyone was going to be like, wow, we've discovered the next great artist. And um, only for me to start discovering what a liberal education and a bachelor's of English will not teach you about plot and, you know, commercialization mm. of fiction versus literary fiction. Right. And mm -hmm. so I had an agent who said to me, why now this is back in, you know, like 2007 or so. Why are you writing for teens? Teenagers don't have any money because, you know, the writing traditional publishing is about making money. It's a business I, I, that yep. doesn't bother me. Yep. It doesn't offend me. And so I thought that was very logical. So I took my first whole story, which was a girl who got molested on her way to school. And I said, what if that's her backstory? What if all of that writing was just a backstory? So I wrote a first chapter uh, for a romance novel because he advised me, write for adults, write romance. That's going to make you the most money. And that's more likely I can find you someone who, I, who will publish your, your stuff. Mm -hmm. So I took, I wrote the first chapter. It was a fun first chapter. She was in a David's bridal, if you will, some kind of bridal boutique. And she was trying on wedding dresses and she has a panic attack because she knows mm. that this wedding dress is going to lead to a honeymoon, which is going to lead to something that frightens her because she had been molested. That was a great mm -hmm. chapter. I loved it. And then when I got ready to write the second chapter, I will be honest, I just wanted to advise her to go to therapy. Never be that callous with an actual human being, but I thought, okay, work on it. I didn't see a plot. I didn't see conflict. Mm. I, you know, I felt like yeah. the answers existed and I didn't have anything mm -hmm. to discover. And so that was when I realized hey, I'm, I'm not a romance writer. I'm not even a writer necessarily for true adult genre, purely adult genre. I found myself extremely compelled by young adult characters because young adult characters have fewer options in life. Young adult characters don't get to choose where they live, when they eat, when you know they have to go to school, when their parents tell them. They have no choices. So conflict is inherent in their life. So they mm. interest me more. I think the life of a teenager has more conflict in that, those stages of us learning from, so let's say 12 to 25. Yeah, I can say that's young adult because I'll be 60 next month. So with that, you know, I, I see that there's such growth there and such opportunity to discover that those are the characters. So that's when I felt, okay, these are the people I, that interest me, who I want to write to and for and about. 
I did have another writer say, maybe it's because you're stuck in your own adolescence and you haven't quite grown up. And I said, you know, that's very possible too. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I want to go with this question, but you, you used the phrase a couple of times. Um, the, but the first time you said was, I didn't have anything to discover, which just sort of stands out to me a little bit in terms of the writing process and the fact that there's that uh, like you're seeking after that you're you want to in the process of your writing you want to discover something new could you just talk yeah. a little bit about that because i i wonder i wonder how often that also drives other writers and i wonder how many writers are aware of that it may not be applicable to everybody but yeah. i certainly think that it is applicable to a lot of us you know and i'll be honest i didn't realize that of course once I discovered that I wasn't as interested in adult characters as and writing adult characters as I was young adults. It wasn't until just maybe about a year ago, I was watching Toni Morrison's, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix or one of the streaming services, has her pieces of me is what the documentary is called. And she basically said that she writes to learn, to discover, to, you know, figure out how to I'm, I'm not using her words, but to process, right? There's something in life. And now how, how would I go about that? And it resonated with me so much. I mean, I sent something out on my social media and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the greatest documentary ever. But it that validated some things for me as a writer that if I know all the answers, I think I'm bored. And the one thing I think a mm -hmm. lot of the craft book says, if you as a writer are bored, your reader's going to be bored. So that doesn't so mean true. everybody is excited by discovery. Some people might be excited by other things as long as they're excited in their writing. But I think that's just, I don't know that I was, I've always been cognitively aware that's why I was writing. I didn't think when mm -hmm. I was writing Locker 572 that I would end up doing all these speaking engagements and speak on suicide. I was just simply writing another story that was in my head. But I do think my brain was trying to figure out some answers you know, in the subconscious spaces, yeah. recesses of my brain on how do I deal with this? And that's right now I'm working on a serial killer series and I'm really finding the most fascinating thing about the serial killer series is figuring out why this person became a serial killer and why someone else didn't. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, and why we're interested in them. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, you know, wanting to, enjoy the process as a writer so the reader can enjoy it. Well, I think that's going back to the craft of writing. I think that can be really helpful just as a reminder as we're going back and editing our own work. If you're bored yeah. as the writer, <laughs> your reader is going to be bored. And yes, I know we hate editing out our own work, but sometimes you got to just ruthlessly cut because yes. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a really good indicator that yes. it's, you, you didn't quite hit the mark just yet. Yes. And it's interesting too. I um I had some coaching training way back in the day and I remember one of the comments that our kind of head coach trainer mentioned was if you already know the answer to the question, it's not a good question. And it it sounds like that's a little bit applicable too in terms of your writing journey and I think I I would say it holds true for mine too just that if you're not interested in what you're talking about, if there's not curiosity there that's really driving you and you don't stay engaged, then you got to go a little bit farther. You need to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, it's so true. And I love that advice, even as on the coaching perspective, because right, how many times do people ask those pat coaching questions that they already know the answer, but you, you feel kind of condescended to if you've got a coach who does that. So 
I love that. Yeah. So let's say that one of our listeners is thinking about writing, um, or maybe they're even writing their second book now. They've written one, maybe they're searching for an agent now, and they're getting ready to start their second novel. What are some pieces of advice that you would give to an uh, some someone who's early kind of in their whole writing career and they're just sort of figuring things out. So maybe some things that you wish somebody would have told you. Yeah, I would get into critique groups as soon as possible with writers, not um, friends, family, teachers, people who like know you and want to say good things to you. I wrote, it took me 25 years to finish that first novel, but the first honest critique, because I had teachers who loved it and, you know, family loved it. But until I got it in front of professionals, um, I didn't really know what elements of writing I wasn't good at. It's like, we don't know what we don't know. So until I could sit mm -hmm. down and find like was ing, right? So there are these craft levels and it's hard to know what your reader might, what your listeners right now might be really good at and what they're not. So everyone's going to have their own scale of what they've been through. But I think getting your work in front of somebody who can critique it and point out things that you can't see that you might not even know to be looking for. You know, I have friends who send me stuff and I'll let them know as a reader, I'm bored or as a reader, I'm lost, I'm confused. You might see it clearly in your brain, but I'm picking up this piece of paper and I have no idea, John from Sally from Susie. Um, so I think that would be my first big piece of advice. And then eventually find, once you've kind of mastered the craft well enough, then step 100% away from critique group so you find your own voice. That was mm, one of the biggest pieces of advice I got. Right when I was doing Locker 572 in about 2010, I'd been doing critique groups for an, about three years and I finally had a professional say, your writing's at the level that the critique groups now are just confusing you because now you're trying to satisfy every reader. This reader likes it, this reader doesn't. And he said, I saw the look on your face. You didn't know what to do with that. He says you're, you're good enough now, step back and just trust your own process. So I think that's really step three, right? Step one, yeah. get out there, just write, put your words on page, learn it, get comfortable with it. And then second, have people who are published, people who aren't related to you <laughs> or your close mm -hmm. friends, people who actually, um, you know, are going to give you an honest opinion so that you can grow. Because if you don't have someone uh, telling you what's not working, I promise you, the readers on Amazon will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. But I mean, <laughs> makes me laugh, um, obviously. So I think there is, it's so important to stress that get somebody who's not related to you or is not in your close circle of friends. Now, I will say this, I think it's also good to share your writing with a couple of people who are that who are yes. your close friends who are the people who love you because we all need some of those accolades those like good job honey right exactly because yes. it's a lot of hard work and we need that but to your point it needs to not be the only voice because Correct. we can all get better no matter how good or not good we are yet we all have things to learn and we need that voice of reason that outside perspective from somebody who doesn't live with us or have to see us yes. at the end of every single day. Yeah. Spot on. You are 100% right. I don't know which writer said it, but they said, don't read the reviews because the mm. reviews will either completely decimate you, the bad ones, the good ones will elevate you thinking that you're better than you actually are. So once you get mm -hmm. out there, don't pay attention to the reviews. 
because yeah. we can either inflate ourselves too high or lower ourselves too low. So it is this interesting balance of, for artists because it is so subjective. But I like that. Yeah. Have some support. Have support networks. Um, it's the other thing that the writing groups do too is just encourage you. Just keep going. Keep at it. Yeah. What do you think about the value of the idea of writing a story to spec? So there's um, there's some writers that I know who got their start essentially yeah, writing to spec. So either writing novels or screenplays where they were just, they were writing the tropes, right? They're just following all the norms. They're learning how plot structure forms. And, um, and I've heard, I've heard, I heard mixed things about it. Some of them feel like it was very valuable to them because they, they just learn those bare bones. And on some level, probably they're learning the rules well enough to know when to break them. Right. And then yeah. others think, it, you know, it got me stuck in a box and I never, I never found my own voice kind of to the comment that you made earlier. So I'm just curious, what do you think about the value of doing something like writing to spec or like writing with the idea of, I'm just writing this to be a commercial success. Like I want this just to, you know, like, like a, an easy romance novel or a summer beach novel or something like that. Yeah. I think you actually kind of answered your own question in there in that you have to know why you're writing. That's the number one thing. What are you writing and who are you writing to? So inevitably i know tiffany as a writer you get friends family strangers on the street once they find out you're a writer they're like oh i'm thinking about writing something and then they tell you what they're thinking about writing and inevitably it's a memoir and what you have to know about memoirs in today's society is unless you're a very famous person nobody wants to read it because right now the the book market is saturated right? With stories very similar to yours. And it could be very sad. Yeah, your mom drove a car off a cliff. Well, probably some famous person had a mom drive their car off a cliff. And so they want to hear from the famous person, even children's books right now, right? It's hard to publish a child, children's book unless you're a very, very famous person, because it's just about marketing. So if you're writing for your heart and for your family, and because you have some tradition you want your family to hear, write whatever story comes to your heart in whatever way that comes into your heart and just be very literary or artistic. However, if you wanna be on the New York Times bestseller list, you need to write to spec. You have to have the tropes. You have to meet what a reader expects. So if you're writing a romance, you have to have a meet cute. You have to have a first kiss. You have to have conflict and something driving the two apart. And then something that drives them back together. Because the people who are watching romance, reading romance, that's why they buy those books. They buy them because that's what they want to consume. So I guess the analogy I would give is if I went into a Mexican restaurant, even though I like Chinese food, I'd be very disappointed if they served me Chinese food in a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> right. But if I'm going home, yeah. whatever mom cooks me, right. I'm like, yay, mom's cooking. And I'm not fussy at that point. So you have to know why you're writing, who you're writing to. So I think there's value in both. If you're a brand new writer and you can get a chance to learn how to write to spec, um, I would be surprised. And I guess I can't just imagine it myself because I had to learn how I'm still learning tropes. I'm still uh, I wish I'd have learned to write to spec because I just feel like that creative place is always there. But maybe mm, I'm delusional in thinking that what I don't have, <laughs> I would always have. Because I, 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 
Uh, I'm a pantser for those that are listening. If you don't know, that's just someone who writes by the seat of their pants and people want me to write an outline, but the outline says, what's your character's goal? And I'm like, I don't know. She hasn't told me yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have those so, conversations with my characters too. Yeah. Like, what is your goal? Uh, I think, I guess my main piece of advice is just um, to any newer writer is just write what you love, write what you love. If you can get mm -hmm. into a spec class and discover what is really commercial, I was in an um, apprentice program with a group called Smarter Artists. And this was to teach specifically how to write to trope, to spec, to genre. And their argument was Steven Spielberg. So Steven Spielberg, we know him to be this amazing director with blockbuster hits like E.T. and those kind of things. But then every once in a while, he'll have this weird indie film that's out there and you're like, wow, the Steven Spielberg did that? But he, I mm -hmm. guess what they told, now this is me quoting them. They wrote the book, Write, Publish, Repeat. So that's the group that did the Smarter Artists. They were doing conferences and they were doing apprenticeships and I was in that. And basically what they said was, that's what he claimed. He said, I do the blockbusters to pay for the times when I can do what I really want to tell the stories that I really want to tell, but this one has to pay the bills. This mm -hmm. one then pays for the, the ability for me to do the other. I don't know, there's so many other things to think about as a writer, but I think writing to spec is perfectly okay. I don't think you can be formulaic, really. I think people fear that, but I think if I were to give you an outline and everyone in our writing group an outline, that we would all write a very different story. You mentioned being a pantser. So there's, you know, the age old question in the writing community, are you a pantser or a plotter that we all get to ask or sort of dance around when we don't want to answer it. To that end, I mean, you mentioned you're a pantser. What does the development of a story look like for you? So for example, I, I, I'm a fan of what I call like the shitty first draft club, you know, just yep. like word vomit onto the page. I yeah. actually do a couple of completely different drafts and then start editing and, and pull everything together. Um, and I use the term ruthlessly edit, like just just be ruthless when it comes to going back over. But what does what does your process look like when you're developing a book for the first time? Yeah, so hopefully it's changing now um, because I want to get faster than I am. I'm down to about five, six years a novel uh, rather than 25, so that's better. But um, <laughs> as I learn the craft more, right, trying to be able to identify and ask the question, the character enough questions early on in the process. But I tend to do that, you know, on Lamont, shitty first draft right? Dump it on the page. Mm -hmm. And then I go back and do the arduous, painstaking work of laying a plot. And I end up rewriting a majority of that first draft. I think as I get older, I'm, e I'm finding it easier to let go of it. But for years, the hardest thing was, wow, I, here's 10 chapters and they're done. How can I fit them in? But yet the story has really gone in a better direction. And it's like, that was just fodder the real story you need to get rid of your darlings you know and kill your darlings know that, yep. kill them kill them off bury them in the back whatever you need to do because they just got you to where you are now so and currently i am rewriting a book that i've been working on since 2008 the serial killer and it's so much better the story she's more interesting i know more about why she's doing what she's doing so there are parts of that old draft that I think will still remain, 
but they're kind of in the back of my mind as I work through what is now more of a, you know, two spec, let's say story. Do you, um, do you chart out your story? Like, I, I think I've seen you at one point with like a copy of the story grid, the book, the story grid, which is I do a lot of it. people really enjoy it. I, I don't use that method, although I do kind of a, um, I don't know, a free flowing version of it, I suppose. But how much, how much of your story or your plot do you sort of write out before you sit down to do the writing itself? Okay, this is going to sound so this, I've done story grid, I've done snowflake method, I've done I feel like every new story, I'm learning a new way to do it. Um, I did, I have grafted out with StoryGraph, you know, a, with my last book, The Bunker. I did use, you know, StoryGraph to help keep that on pace and where it was going. And that did help me. Uh, it's a lot of work. At this point right now, the another one, Breakout Novel Workbook, that was one I used for the center um, where I, again, went back and I just did everything the experts say to do in that story to clean up characters or polish plot lines. Or, you know, I think in that book, Donald Moss says, what would your character never say? What would your character never do? What would your character never think? Now make them say, think and do it. Um, so I make sure all of those <laughs> elements. Interesting. You know, right. As I guess a lifelong learner and a lifelong teacher, I haven't mastered one technique yet. Uh, Tiffany, honestly, sure. I've like right now I'm I'm kind of using a hodgepodge of all of them. But I will say the thing that's driving this particular story is Story Genius by Lisa Cohen. Mm -hmm. so, okay. Okay. I well, I mean, I, I will say I, I want you to finish, but I, I want to make a comment here. And that is that what, I, what I'm kind of taking away from this particular conversation is that there's validity in kind of all of these methods. And I think sometimes I do see writers get really hung up on which one is the right one, which one is the best one. Bingo. And I think sometimes that's not the best question to ask. It's more, what can I learn from this? Can this help me get a little bit better? Is it the best? Who cares? Get a little bit better. Just go all in, get a little bit better. I agree with you whole, wholeheartedly. In fact, what I find is, and so I'm in a, I'm a, I'm in a inner circle right now, a masterclass with Jerry Jenkins, and we're doing Les Edgerton's Hooked book. But what I find is because I've read, I don't know, 25 craft books, you know, or taken, you know, a dozen classes for masters in the craft, that what I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm reading Les Edgerton's book, there are things that just make sense to me. Like, I was like, oh, I get it. But there are other people in the group saying, I don't know, I'm confused. But they also haven't got the 25 craft books that are roaming around in their head somewhere because they've read all of these other plot and structure by James Bell. Highly recommend it. Story Grid, recommend it. Les Edgerton's Hooked book, recommend it. Lisa Cohen's Story Genius book. But I don't think there is one. What happens is I'll be listening to one and all of a sudden I'll say, oh, yeah, you know what? That's what's missing in this scene because techniques of a selling writer, scene and sequence, right? Down to mm -hmm. the very rudimentary, you know, action, reaction, understanding all of those elements as a writer, I think makes you better. I, I envy people who can just write from the, you know, off the cuff and they're naturally just really gifted at knowing where things should go and how they should go. I do wonder how many people are really like that, though. I mean, I know we we have this sort of idea, this romanticized idea in, my, in our heads. And I think there are probably a handful Fair. of people in the Fair. world who are like that. But I, I suspect that number might be a lot smaller than we think. I think you're right. I think you're right. But those people, those brilliant people, I mean, they're like, right, they're 
they're the outliers on the north on the normal yeah, curve. Exactly. They're they're yeah. they're not definitely the norm. The norm is Very us. Much. And we're like, what's wrong with this chapter? And if I can pick up one of those random books and Lisa Cohen can in Story Genius say, why does your character want this? What's the driving thing? And what origin, what three scenes from her past led her to this? And I'm like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. And once I found the answer, the scene started to make sense. So mm -hmm. it's just those little nuggets. It's almost, you know, again, if I go back to the cooking analogy, it's like, wow, imagine the first time you discover ginger. You're like, oh, wow, this really makes my food taste <laughs> yummy. <laughs> <laughs> Changes everything and you use it for everything. And then you just, you discover like another spice. Right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe it's not as appropriate to have ginger in this as it right, is right. this. Yeah. And that's right. mastering. Yep. I think the biggest misnomer, and I think you just touched upon it, is that the writing's not a craft. We all take English and we graduate with, you know, 13 years of English when we graduate from high school. We've taken English every year of our life. And so therefore we think, because <laughs> we've written essays or book reports or emails or letters or all of the English we've studied, that therefore we are all, that writing is this thing we should all know how to do when there really is a craft behind it. We don't think of that for dancers. We don't think of that for artists. We don't think of that for actors. We don't think about it in any other artistic genre. But when people come and they start, first try to start to write, there's this discovery. I have, I have a social media gal who's helping me because again, I'm turning 60, she's 22. So she helps me with this Gen Z generation. And But mm -hmm. so she's putting together a Pandora, or, or uh, not Pandora, I keep saying Pandora, Patreon site for me. And yep. um, so she she emailed me or she texted me, sorry, not email, texted me and said, can you write me a quick paragraph? Right. And I texted her back. There is no such thing as a quick paragraph. There, it takes know, longer to write that. This is what we as writers know. It takes longer to write the quick paragraph than it does to write the chapter. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. yeah so, yep. yeah, it's that. I think there's this misnomer out there that that somehow everybody's got a book in them. Um, uh, you know, that everybody or anyone can write, that it's not this craft that, you know, you have to learn how to play tennis and be great at tennis and reach Wimbledon. And so I think there's this concept that, oh, if I have a, you know, story in my head, translating that onto a page is very different than telling it out loud or acting it out. It's its own craft and learning to master that craft, I think is a forever lifeline, lifelong endeavor i don't know if you're a stephen pressfield fan at all he has written a lot of books um for writers he's he's a novelist but he's he's written a lot of books for writers that have he's got kind of a cult following and he has this book called turning pro where he talks about kind of the moment where he realized that he was no longer an amateur writer he had turned professional and he talks about this moment because he says, you know, nothing in my external world changed. It was not the moment that my novel was picked up by an agent and became popular. He did get to that point, but he turned pro before that. But it was the moment he said where he learned that he was no longer running from his fears. He stopped and he turned around and he faced them. And that was the Love moment he said that. it took him. It took him like a decade or however long I'm probably misquoting the years, but it took him a long time was the point. And so I'm curious, I think as writers, like we all have, we all have a certain level of fear, right? Um, Absolutely. It could be about the craft, it could be personal fears that sort of pull us back, it, it can be at many things. 
what what is a fear that you have encountered um and how has learning to face that fear helped shape you as a person well that's so good i mean i think that there's a roller coaster of fears all the time when it comes to writing um for me personally um but i think it would go you know if I think of any one moment where there was that pivotal, because I'm connecting what he said, and sorry, Stephen, I don't know who you are. I'm sure you're listening, because Tiffany's podcast is just that famous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am um, sure he is not listening, but thank you so much for that shout out. I appreciate hey, it. Ste hey, Stephen, I'm sure you're going to be listening. That concept of when that um, takes place, I think, you know, mentioned a couple of times this concept of imposter syndrome. Um, mm -hmm. But I think for me, um, I don't remember which which craft writer mentioned it, but the need to be authentic in what we write, you know, and not be mm -hmm. afraid to write what's real. And Locker 572 was the fourth novel I finished, not published, but finished. And it was okay. that was when I finally wrote this deep, dark part of what was in my head, mm -hmm. thinking if I put it on the page that. I would exercise those demons, if you will, only to discover it really required me to share with the world and the world was so receptive. I think we really mm. fear, you know, the trolls and the trolls are so noisy, but they're so few. I really think the majority of people don't spend their time hating on things. If they don't like something, they just, I don't pick up romance books. So I'm not out there disparaging every romance writer in the world because it's a genre I don't like to read. I just choose not to read it and I don't have anything bad to say about them. Good on you, go mm -hmm. do it. Um, and those mm -hmm. that want to read it, good on you, go do it. And so um, I don't know that I've answered your question in relationship to fears as much because I think it's just, again, I think my biggest fear is more, am I creating something of value? Well, and to contribute, it goes back to that idea of finding your authentic voice, finding your own voice, yeah. because that that is the, the way in which we contribute. And I think um, some people maybe sort of naturally get to that point, but I think a lot of us have a tendency to censor ourselves Yes. in our art and in our work yeah. just in general right for a whole bunch yeah. of reasons yeah and yet it's in finding kind of our own authenticity and vulnerability that we're able to connect with others and that we're able to actually contribute yeah and i might even just change one word in the the, the phraseology that you used it's not about our i think finding is the word we use but i think the word we should use is accepting because i think we mm. are who we are and we yeah. have this history and I look at like, I remember when the movie Precious came out and her novel came out and she wrote such a raw story about her life. But everyone, Brene Brown, you know, everyone knows Brene Brown, you know, Brene Brown, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Love her. <laughs> right. Everyone loves her. But her whole talks on TED Talks about vulnerability and how when she asks people, is vulnerability a weakness? And everyone has this myth that vulnerability is a weakness. When you see someone being vulnerable, you think they're being strong. And so I think it's us being willing to accept our where we're broken and reach out. I will tell you the thing that was the pivot for me in being able to share my story, my suicidal story, 
was I was doing a Bible study with um, someone named Beth Moore. She does these arduous Bible studies. She gives you homework like nobody's business. So it's not your rudimentary Tuesday night, read a verse. And she was doing a Bible study on the book of Esther. And Esther was a Jewish queen married to Xerxes. She was there to help save the Jewish people. And Beth Moore, who struggled from being molested as a child, she wrote a Bible study. Her mom told her she didn't want to write. So her first Bible study was nice and, you know, Jesus, the one and only and all this love and Jesus's love and all those fun things that we like to hear about Jesus. But her one big breakout one was called the, you know, breaking through. And that was her dealing with molestation, being molested by a family member and what that did to her spiritually. And her mom was like, oh, honey, go back to those, you know, nicer stories. We don't need to talk about that. Right. And that tends to be what, you know, we can hear often in our own heads is no, 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 the world doesn't want to hear that. And so she realized, and she wrote this in her Esther Bible study, that just as Esther was a Jewess, and the she as a Jewish was the one who was qualified to save the Jews. She could save her people. Beth Moore, having suffered from molestation, was equipped to save her people, other people who had been molested as children. And immediately I felt the resonance that as a person with suicidal ideation, I can speak to people who have suicidal ideation. I can help them come through onto the other side. And so I think it's accepting all the trauma. I think everyone has trauma from their childhood. God bless us, even the best parent in the world, accepting who we are, what our makeup is, and all of that that made us who we are. Then we can find our tribe, support that tribe, encourage that tribe. Let people, there are people who suffer from huge anxiety nowadays. Lately, I've just, my, my children and friends' children, anxiety is a big thing these days, and I don't know what the contributions are. But somebody needs to come and say, hey, all us anxious people, let's get together mm -hmm. and talk about how we process that and how we can get on the other side so you don't feel so alone. So I just think that that's accepting who we are rather than trying to find who we are. But I think there's some searching, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, in mm -hmm. there. And so, mm -hmm. but for me, it was like, oh, I'm not a, you know, I, I am the product of my past. And if I can love this broken girl who, you know, felt what she felt as a child and all the goods, bads, and the uglies, that's where authenticity comes out and people will see it, resonate with it, find their own authenticity. And then I just use the word find. <laughs> <laughs> full, circle, full circle, full circle. But I, uh, but I, I love that. And I, one of the things I, I heard, um, it was a piece of advice that I, I can't remember now who said it, but somebody was talking about just the value of writing and completely apart from like writing for commercial success or, you know, wanting to become a quote unquote professional writer, but just the value for anyone to write and to put writing out into the world publicly. And what he had mentioned was to him, I think he's an angel investor, actually. And he said, the value of writing is that you write into the blackness for a while because you're going to keep putting stuff out and you won't get anything back for a while. That's just like the normal process of writing. But eventually you start to find your tribe, like yes. you mentioned before. And it is the, that process of accepting, accepting who you are, learning how to articulate sort of those thoughts, those dreams, those struggles, 
the journey that you've been on, the yeah. hope that you see. Maybe it's the hope you have, maybe it's the hope you want, but you don't have it yet. Yes. And and putting that into words and finding your tribe by publishing it. And and yes. that is I think that's one of the most beautiful things about writing. And it's something that you model really well. And um, yeah, it's just so powerful. Thank you. And now I feel valuable and that's what we get, right? Full circle. So now I don't have to be afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I have my writer Ex community. Well, Laura Lee, this has been just an absolute pleasure. It always is getting uh, a chance to talk to you. Um, where can our listeners go to find your books or to connect with you if they want to? Uh, you already mentioned your um, your cell yes. phone and your email. You have a website as well, right? I do. So just www.kodzobooks.com. You can find all of my books on there. And we'll also put a link to your website um, in the show notes for this episode as well. Awesome. So I'll also send you one for Locker 572 for teachers out there that might be interested. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. We'll include that in as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, pleasure as always. Thank right. you, Tiffany. Take care.